Welcome to Mavericks. I'm Joey Garcia, and in today's episode, we'll be talking to one of the top authorities in the blockchain space. He's the general counsel of Ava Labs and one of the founding members of the Digital Pound Foundation. A friend and a maverick, it's Lee Schneider. This is Mavericks, brought to you by Zappa Bank. So Lee, awesome to have you here. Um, Great to be so, here, Joey. It's so, it's so, you know, you are one of the guys, we're running this series called Mavericks. Um, you are one of the Mavericks that I think of when when we started talking about who we might want to be involved and get involved. And I, I'll, like, really brief background, but going back to the days, it was a long time ago, when I was getting a little bit more into the space, I read this paper around this whole sort of, what is a security or what falls within that definition? You were one of the contributors. That was really funny. It was years later that we met, I think, at the Wharton yep, Red Tech Academy, right. which was the first one. But I'd love to hear from you a bit of your background, how you got to writing that paper or, you know, from the legal, more into the protocol side of things. It's been a super interesting journey. I'd love to hear a bit about that. So I, I was a traditional financial services and technology lawyer for many, many years before blockchain came along. And then even after blockchain first came along, even after the Satoshi white paper and everything, you know, I followed it with interest, but I, I wasn't thinking that that would be the next direction for my career. But uh, after the launch of Ethereum and the start of the growth around the Ethereum ecosystem and everything like that, I started getting more and more interested. I was reading more about the different things that were going on. And... Um, at the beginning of 2016, I said to myself, well, actually, I'm a lawyer at a law firm. I can go get my own clients. And so I'm going to go find blockchain clients. And so I started just spreading the word around and meeting some people. And uh, through serendipity, I met the folks at Coinbase. And that's how we started doing that initial paper. Um, and it, it was, it, at, at first... For me, it was like, oh, this is just an extension of the financial services stuff that I already do. But I soon realized that actually blockchain is not just financial services technology. It's really new infrastructure for the internet as a whole, a new way to think about digitally representing all different kinds of assets. How, and how, how, do you, how do you describe it? How, so if you're asked by someone, what is a blockchain? Or what, what exactly does that mean? A real sort of novice question. How, how do you describe it? So it depends on how much time I have to do the description. But you know, the, 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 thing, the place that I start with is one of the big problems in computer science is how do we make all the computers in a network agree on the data set that's, that's, that they need to agree on? And that, that, that's been a big problem in computer science. And it hasn't been, you know, there's been a couple of solutions, but uh, really only one solution. It's really all variations on one solution until the Bitcoin white paper comes out. And what, what the Bitcoin white paper does is it creates a methodology by which distributed system, distributed computers anywhere in the world can agree on a data set. And what that allows you to do is to create digitally unique items. And so what blockchain is, is a database technology, but it's extra cool database because it allows you to create digitally unique items. 
And with digital uniqueness comes ownership and value. So blockchains establish ownership and allow you to transfer value across the internet. So on a global basis, without having to rely on third-party intermediaries. And transfer it in a secure manner. And transfer it in a secure manner, absolutely. The security point is, is a key point as well. Um, and, and so that's how, I, that's how I describe it. And you know, the funny thing is most people don't spend any time thinking about how difficult it is to get a whole bunch of computers to agree on data. But human beings, we spend a lot of time thinking about how difficult it is to get a group of human beings to agree on something, yeah. right? And so for me, it's been really interesting to, to learn about how these consensus mechanisms work for computers and then try to think a little bit about, well, what kinds of applications could we have to the way humans reach consensus. Uh, one day I will write something about that because my thinking is still very much in the infancy, but I, th I think there's some really interesting areas there. And going back to that point, that, that original paper, and I always find this interesting when I speak to people from, from the US. So I remember reading that, that was a long time ago. I remember the initial water meetings and people talking about sort of the security, the tests around that, the Howie principles, et cetera, all super interesting. Um, and it seems like the same conversations are still happening. Your sort of most yes. off-quoted sort of oranges and not securities, I mean, I've heard that many times. Um, uh, but why, why, is that, why is that still happening in, in the US? Why is that not evolved to the question of certainty and clarity on, on that question? We don't want a whole forensic analysis, but no, of love course. to hear. And look, my, my view has been that actually the Howey test is pretty clear and what's happening is, is that lots of people are watering it down because they come to the test with the presumption that things are securities, right? And what Howie says is, well, actually, things are not securities. So the oranges in Howie, the orange groves in Howie weren't securities. What the Howie test says, it's an arrangement that might be a security. So an arrangement related to oranges, related to the growing and picking and distribution and selling and profits from the oranges, that arrangement could be a security. And here's the test to determine whether or not the arrangement is a security. What happens is, is so many people come with preconceived notions about the test and about what should be a security. And those preconceived notions tend to be, well, if it's an investment, it's a security. We know that that's not true, but people tend to have that viewpoint. Um, and, and so that's why the debate continues and continues and continues. We need to stop saying the Howey test is about whether or not an asset is a security and start saying the Howey test is about whether or not an arrangement is a security. It's not whether or not an investment is a security. It's whether an investment contract exists and that extra word contract paired with investment really shows you that what was intended and this is what the supreme court said is is there a contract transaction or scheme that is an investment contract uh, because otherwise you end up you know coming up with situations where oranges are securities even though nobody mm. would believe that where collectibles are securities even though nobody would believe that um, and, and so we we 
defy our own brains and what we know because we're just busy pushing all crypto assets mm. in one direction. Yeah. And and that that that's I mean the test around the actual asset itself or, or that principle is one thing. The actual I'm interested because you we were talking about blockchain as a principle or as a concept. Um and that has loads of other legal implications as well. But where do you think, so you're talking about the internet, we're talking about blockchain. So we'll use a simple sort of eBay example, a secondary market for buying and selling things, let's call it that. Right. And now you introduce this new technology and this sort of trustless-based uh, infrastructure. Um, now everything is falling within the scope of financial services law. So do, does the digitization of my eBay items, should that be bringing everything that happens on these platforms within a new scope of law or new scope of financial services regulation? Are things moving in that direction? Or are they moving in a different direction? And how, how do you influence the outputs? Or how can, how can you influence policymakers to think in a certain way? It's a, it's a difficult question. It, it, it is. It, it's a great question, and it's at the core of a lot of the advocacy work that I do and educational work that I do. Uh, and, and look, you, you said, like, once I digitize everything on eBay. Well, everything on eBay well, yeah, is already exactly, digitized, exactly, right? It's just exactly. a question of what is the database technology exactly. that's used for that digitization. And so if I go to sell a... Um, uh, you know, a pair of shoes on eBay. Let's say I've got a pair of vintage Air Jordans that I've never worn and some sneakerhead, I want some sneakerhead to buy them from me, right? I, I create a digital representation of those shoes with pictures, with a description, with all kinds of other information, right? And that digital representation sits on eBay servers as opposed to on a blockchain. Now, if we were to take that off of eBay servers and put it on a blockchain, we would create a token yep, or a crypto exactly. asset that represents those sneakers. And so I see no reason why that has anything to do with financial services, right? Sure, there's going to be a payment made to pay for those sneakers, but the sneakers are not a financial instrument. Financial services law is about financial instruments. It's not about the general commercial economy. So is this, is this, and this takes me kind of onto the next most obvious question in, in that context. So the sneaker example is a really good one. The security example is another really good one. I mean, are all virtual assets created equal? I mean, at, at the moment, we're in the sort of universe of, you know, a virtual asset or crypto asset is everything. So all things are crypto assets. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about the sneaker, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about BTC, it doesn't really matter. It's it's all within one universe. Is And that seems to be like pretty accepted in the world when people are looking at the, you know, the FATF definition of a virtual asset and transposing yep. it into law and everything else. They weren't looking at specific classifications. It started to happen a bit maybe now, but but I'd love to hear your view on that. And I know we've discussed this before, but I'm super interested in this. Look, I, I think it's a key concept here. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say two things that will sound contradictory, and they are a little bit contradictory. One thing is, look, when law develops, the nature of the asset, that is to say, is it sneakers or securities or Bitcoin, has tended to make a difference about the the regulatory structure and the legal structure around mm -hmm. how we deal in those things. Think about real property, for example. Buying land 
is treated in many jurisdictions as very different mm. from buying anything else. And that's because of the historical value of land and law had to develop around the purchase and other types of leasing of land and all of this other stuff. Um, and the same has been true for securities as an asset class. The same is true for collectibles, That's, right? We, we just treat all of these different assets differently under the law. So the question is, is there a reason we should do that? And I'm totally happy if we all decide, actually, there's no reason to do that. We should just treat all assets as being equal and we're gonna have the same requirements for them. Um, I think that's probably unrealistic because it would involve such a sea change in the law uh, in all jurisdictions that it's not practical. And, that, and that's the other thing, isn't it? Where each country, can introduce different classification systems. It makes it absolutely, especially in a global network. I mean, these things operate on global scales. So that that that's right. And and your crypto asset uh, in Gibraltar is the same as your crypto asset in the U.S. is the same as your crypto asset in any other country. And and so so how how do we figure out where we should sort of standardize it? And the one area that I've come up with is around the trading of these mm. crypto assets. And so I think what, uh, what one good approach to where we can standardize things is to think about market integrity, right? If there are markets on which these crypto assets are trading, it doesn't matter if it's the sneaker crypto asset, the security crypto asset, or the Bitcoin, let's just say there's common market integrity standards. And then let's also say, those same standards apply to markets in things that are not tokenized. Those markets mm. apply, the, those market integrity principles apply regardless of whether or not blockchain is involved. And, and, and that, I mean, it, it makes so much sense. I mean, I'm listening to you and thinking it makes so much sense. But what, what are the blockers to these things happening? Um, and is it a question of, I mean, we've definitely seen this over the last five or 10 years, um, the pace of the development of the technology and its application and use is just much faster than legislative or policy related sort of decisions can be made. So sometimes that those frameworks can't really move at the same pace. Is that the blocker? Is that the blocker to, I mean, if you start to speak to certain jurisdictions around token classification systems, they'll look at you and say, well, really we're just trying to understand what a wallet provider is and what right. an exchange is. That right. might be something we look at. If you want to talk about decentralized finance, they're like, okay, wait, wait, wait a second. Let's, you know, let's start with the small steps. Is that the blocker, do you think? Or what are the other blockers? Or is it non-agreement? I don't know. No, I, I think that's definitely one of the blockers. And, and I, I don't mean that as being critical, right? I've been doing this for six plus years now and I still learn new things yeah. every day. So to expect uh, a legislature or a regulator to have the facility to come up with these, uh, you know, to, to try to create all of this infrastructure, um, I, I think is, is expecting a lot. So I, I do think that that's one of the blockers and that's why I think education is critical, having resources for people to go so they can really understand the basics and spending a lot of time 
talking about the same basic concepts over and over again until it becomes ingrained for people the way it's ingrained for you and I, I think that's super important. The other thing that I think goes on is, as I said before, people come to this with their own preconceived notions about, mm. how, uh, about how things work. And blockchain tends to blow up some of those preconceived notions. Um, you know, I, I had one notion of value before I really delved into blockchain. I now have another notion of value about blockchain. I have this constant running debate with my younger daughter. Uh, she says, daddy, ketchup is more valuable than Bitcoin. And I say, well, that's not what the market says, but explain to me why that's true. And she says, well, I know what I can use ketchup for. I have no idea what I can use Bitcoin for. And so it's coming up with those sense of how do you value these things? Um, why are these things valuable? It, it's really changed the way that I look at value of different things in the world, of different things that people uh, create. And so when you come at something with very preconceived notions, like your love of ketchup, um, you know, sometimes that, that colors the, the answers that you give. It colors your thinking. And so that's why, again, I think the educational stuff is so important. Having just simple themes that people can understand are so important. Completely agree. But do, do, you think, do you think that that has happened a bit over the last five years? I mean, I definitely think that a conversation with you know, high-level authorities five years ago was dramatically different to what it is today. And, and with younger people, I think, to an extent. But I, I, I don't know. The, the, I think there's still a gap at a young, younger age group level where they think of these markets more... They do think of them as more sort of speculative environments or they don't really understand sort of functional application of that kind of technology. Um, and that's a learning process as well. But we have come a long way, right, I think. I, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, and look, it's getting reflected in some of the uh, in some of the legislation and regulation that we're seeing. Mika is a good example of that. One of the first things Mika says is, if it's a MIFID financial instrument on a blockchain, Mika does not apply. That's MIFID, right? That's a clear recognition that there are different types of crypto assets. Uh, and, and and there are other things in Mika that do that as well. I don't mean yeah. that to be the exclusive thing, but uh, other jurisdictions are starting to do the same thing, right? We're seeing specific stablecoin legislation that's part of Mika, something the Japanese have done. We're seeing proposals towards stablecoin legislation in the U.S. and mm -hmm. other jurisdictions. And so we're starting to see people make those differentiations, and we need to continue to to have those differentiations uh, made clear to people. A NFT collectibles is a perfect example, right? Um, my favorite example is the fart jar NFTs, just because I'm basically five years old. Um, but right, nobody's going to say that the fart jar NFT is a security. Or let me put it a different way. I would love to hear somebody testifying in front of Congress in the U.S. Yeah. say, fart jars are securities. <laughs> that will be my dream come true. Um, but, I'm but, not sure I'd say it was my dream come true. But I mean. <laughs> well, I'm a, simple, I'm a simple blockchain lawyer, so I have simple dreams. Um, but, but 
right? That understanding that, okay, this is just not a financial instrument. It's a collectible in the same way that, you know, for me growing up, baseball cards were a collectible. Uh, I don't know if you guys had football mm. cards when, when you were growing up, but right, th- those are collectibles. And whether they're in physical form or digital form, it doesn't make that much of a difference. It's just a collectible. So really getting people, showing people with funny examples like fart jars helps them really contextualize what's going on, I think. Do you think do you think things will do you think there's going to be more eventual alignment between the existing financial services world and the blockchain universal industry? Is that is that a natural progression? Will will you see the big financial institutions start to adopt? Or let me ask you a similar but slightly different question. Um, if you have whatever large institute, JP Morgan, whoever, whoever it might be, um, create a blockchain-based infrastructural payment system, whatever it is, does that defeat the object of, of, of blockchain as a, let's call it, decentralized infrastructure? If you start having narrow groups developing things, does it, does it make it different? And I'm asking that because I quite often hear the example, we're super pro-blockchain, but we're super anti-crypto. And... I'm not sure that there is that distinction, <laughs> but uh, I'd love to hear what you think. I, I, I think it's an interesting question. I, I do think there are people who believe only in decentralized blockchains um, and, and the, that technology and that as the basis for how the world should work. Um, I'm not in that extreme of a camp. I definitely think decentralized blockchains are important. And I think the ability of people to use decentralized blockchains is very important. I think it's going to be a huge driver of economic activity. I think it's going to create wealth at all levels in many different societies around the world, many different countries around the world, all of which I think is hugely important. Um, That said, I do see use cases for more closed and permissioned blockchains. Mm. Um, So I I do think financial services adopting blockchains makes a lot of sense. I think um, for bookkeeping and accounting, blockchains Mm. make a lot of sense. Um, With bookkeeping and accounting, there's not really a crypto aspect to it necessarily. I, I mean, look, most of the things on blockchain are quote-unquote tokenized. That's how you get the digital uniqueness. Mm -hmm. That's how you establish that something is, quote-unquote, real in the digital world. And so that's very important, right? The benefits for accountants are that audit trail that you get Mm -hmm. following from the receipt of the invoice all the way through to the approvals and the payment of the Immutably recorded. Immutably recorded on a transparent ledger, right? So those are huge benefits. And you can think of that as tokenizing each of those steps along the way because that's sort of how things are represented on blockchains. But those are not the kinds of crypto assets that, that we've been talking about. Those are, you know, very specific, narrow, um, uh, digitally unique entries in a database mm. um, as opposed to creating a crypto asset that has a lot of value to multiple people. 
Mm. Let me ask you another, because you, you touched on the point or difference between a decentralized network and, let's say, a permission network. How do, how do you define a decentralized network? Or what's, what's the... I'm not, I, I, don't, I think I can ask you what's the test for decentralization, summarizing one minute, but, um, but what's your sort of take on the concept of decentralization? And I'm going to ask you another thing around that, which is you mentioned very briefly the sort of concept of financial inclusion, et cetera. I mean, conceptually, I understand that. Practically, is that really happening? Is that really happening today? So two different questions, decentralization as a concept and impact on financial inclusion as a reality. So I'll, I'll answer the decentralization question first because I have a short definition of it. I don't pretend that it's the only definition that people can use, but I like to think of decentral of the hallmarks of decentralization as being no single point of failure, mm -hmm. no single source of truth, and no single authority that has either the ability or the obligation to change data or change programming. And so for me, that's sort of how blockchains work. That's sort of how smart contracts work in, in the purest form, if you will. Um, you don't have to have decentralization. But if you're trying to get decentralization, I think those three things are the hallmarks of it. Um, on the financial inclusion piece, so I actually prefer to talk about it in terms of economic inclusion as mm -hmm. opposed to financial inclusion. Financial inclusion I view as a narrower part of economic inclusion. And the reason I talk about it as economic inclusion is because people who have access to public blockchains can build their own business on those blockchains. And that business could be financial in nature and, and they can use the financial rails that the public blockchains create as part of their business, but it doesn't have to be. So as you know, there's tons of gaming that's being mm -hmm. built on blockchains. And that gaming is, you know, there's not financial instruments being mm -hmm. created. It's not about financial inclusion. It's about people slaying dragons or shooting villains or zombies or building cities or whatever it is that they're doing. And um, so I think of that as broader economic activity. And the reason I think that economic inclusion is possible is because the public blockchains are open to anyone with a computer and internet access. And many of them now, the ability to program on those blockchains, you don't need more than a laptop. Uh, and so you can create your business on blockchain with your laptop in the same way you can do that in the traditional internet space um, with drag and drop tools and, and whatnot. And so I see that as really creating a huge amount of economic inclusion um, and that's facilitated by this new blockchain infrastructure over the internet. Because at the bottom, it allows you to get paid for what you're doing through crypto assets, but you can do much more than just have payment crypto assets. Mm -hmm. And, and, and what, what's um, a question like maybe a little, a little more specific for you? Because you talk about blockchain, we're making a difference. Let's just say internet and blockchain, but what's blockchain? So that, that's a whole other, I mean, you could, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about other labs, et cetera, obviously as well. But that, that's based on sort of the concept, not based on, but decentralized 
finance or applications, etc. I know you've been involved in enterprise blockchain development as well. Um, but it, my question is, is that going to be the blockchain or are there going to be many blockchains or are, is there going to be more of a focus on interoperability between those blockchains or will there be one blockchain to rule them all in five years time or I, I don't know I mean there's one internet language to rule them all uh, the language of whatever it is TCPIP right is is that is that something is it competitive at the moment is it sort of collaborative just curious on your sort of take on all of that stuff yeah so I I don't see that there's going to be one blockchain to rule them all I think different blockchains um, fill different niches and uh, people will use them for different things. Uh, when I look at Avalanche, you know, the blockchain that Avalabs works on, um, that's designed a particular way to be compatible with mm. uh, uh, Ethereum uh, and be an EVM, Ethereum virtual machine. But it's also designed to be able to create what we call subnets, which are separate blockchains that are customizable. So we have a bunch of gaming subnets mm -hmm. right now. Gaming is very rules intensive, and when they can customize the blockchain to a, with their own rule set, it allows them a lot greater flexibility on what they want to build and how they want to build it. Um, most other public blockchains don't have that capability of having uh, of, of being able to build your own blockchain, so to speak, and so they're. That they have different uses and different different use cases associated with them. Um, do I think Bitcoin is going to be the one blockchain to rule them all? I I, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I think Bitcoin is hugely important. It's the progenitor here. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be valuable. It's always going to be important. But it's limited in what it can do mm -hmm. uh, by design. And... Um, as people are experimenting with new technologies, we're going to continue to see new and 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 maybe better uh, blockchains that are better suited for particular things. Do you, and do you think that what what's restricting the the established financial services universe from um, interacting with the world of let's say DeFi on any blockchain? What, what do you? Think the restrictions, or what, what's what's the hesitant factor on that? Is it a lack of understanding? Is it a risk or a tech risk, or is it a compliance risk? Or what, what, what do you think? I think the tech risk is the biggest issue. Um, with any new technology, it takes people time to adapt and understand how to use it. Um, I mean, I myself, although I've been a blockchain lawyer for a while now, I. Uh, I'm, I still get scared every time I'm going to do something with my wallet or, or with my private keys and whatnot, just because um, I, I feel hesitant about, about um, my ability to really use the technology. Um, I know that I will be able to overcome that once I keep, you know, as I keep practicing and doing things more often. Um, and, and so I think that's going to happen over the course of time. Uh, the large financial institutions will experiment with blockchains and they'll lose the fear uh, of it and it will become part of the tech stack that they use. Mm. Uh, large, large companies of all types are going to go through that same process. And uh, I do think in the future that blockchain is just going to be another part of the tech stack 
that people build on. And do you, and I, I, I think, I mean, I definitely agree, but um, let me ask you or challenge that in one way. Going back a few years, we were all there, 2017 and everything else, and the whole ICO universe of everything. There were so many, so many fantastic projects, by the way, as well. Um, lots of bad stuff as well, but lots of, lots of smart young guys with lots of fascinating ideas around whatever the tokenization of different forms of different industries, different assets, etc. I mean, everything, fashion, through to press, through to music, through to everything you can think of. But today, how much of that has actually come through? So what's going to stop that from happening? I mean, is are we moving towards an era of tokenization of everything? Or have we already been through that and it's been stopped? Or have there been too many failures? I, I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, it, it's a good question. I, I think at the end of the day, we're still at the start yeah. of the evolution here. Mm-hmm. Um, look, businesses fail all the time. By the way, I don't mean to say that there haven't been scams. There have been scams. Scams are bad. Don't commit fraud. People who do that for fraudulent purposes should be punished. Uh, I, but, but there's also just people who make an honest attempt to build a business and what happens is either it's too soon and people are not ready to adopt it or there was something that they didn't think of and so it didn't work out or somebody else had the same idea and got much more of the adoption before, right? All of those kinds of things happen in outside of blockchain and they happen inside blockchain mm-hmm. as well. Um, I, I do think that we are talking about new infrastructure for the internet here. And so it's going to take people time to sort out business models. It's going to take people time to get comfortable with the technology. It's going to take the technologists time to make the interfaces easy enough so that frightened lawyers like myself will feel very comfortable using, uh, using the technology. And, and so we're, we're going through this period where all of that stuff is getting built in one way or another. Oh, you also mentioned, you know, in, uh, inter-blockchain communication, right? Those things are getting built out mm-hmm. now too. And so all of that infrastructure needs to get built. All of that learning needs to happen and uh, a lot of experimentation is going to continue to happen. So for my money, I think we're you know, still in early innings to use some baseball speak. Um, we've got a long way to go. And uh, what's going to keep pushing it is the creativity of the people that, that we meet in this industry. And do you think, Lee... Um on the stuff or the industries that have already gained some traction, I'd probably put, I'm not sure if I put it at the top of the block, but the whole stable coin sort of universe, it's definitely a regulatory uh, focus. The whole CBDC universe of discussions that, that, that are happening, all these sort of inter-CBDC versus stable coin infrastructure and who's going to be, are they both relevant? Are they compatible? Um, who will come out as the ultimate sort of market controller, if you like, or I don't know. Do you, do you see CBDCs um, as a natural progression? Uh, is that the next thing? I mean, I know you're part of the Digital Pound Foundation yep. here as well. Lots of work being done around that. Um, do you see that gaining traction? Or, or we, I mean, there were 
discussions in the UK, I think back in 2015 or something around uh, the digital pound, but is that going to take another 10 years? What, what do you think? What do you see developing and emerging there? I, I think it's a great question, and I wish I, I wish I had a crystal ball <laughs> to oh, yeah. see what that future looks like. Look, I, I think there is a place for CBDC, central bank digital currencies. Um, there, there's already so much digitization when it comes to money, right? Like when you look at your balance on your bank account, that's just a digital record on a bank's computer database of how much you have, right? There's not that much money sitting in the bank waiting for you to claim it. So I think that we're going to see a lot of development in stable coins. I would not be surprised if a lot of banks start to introduce their own stable coins. It's right up their alley. A bank account is basically a form of stable coin right now. So I think we're going to see that. And the real question in my mind is if that takes off, will there even be a need for CBDCs? Um, and because you know banks create most of the money anyway uh, through fractional reserve bank lending and all the other stuff that they do. So I, I'm I'm really interested to see what the answer is going to be there. I I, I do believe we will see CBDCs. Um, I'm not sure what format they're going to take. And one possibility in the future is that um, we see a lot of stablecoin development that obviates the need for CBDCs. That said, I think the work that groups like the Digital Pound Foundation do is super important because it's really designed to educate not just policymakers, but everyone about what this future might look like, whether it's a true CBDC from the Bank of England or a CBDC mm. that's really a stable coin issued by lots of different banks. Mm. Is, is, is the argument for, or one of the arguments for um, CBDCs, the, the efficiency of the technology? I mean, if, if you look at, like you said, uh, my bank account, my, I can effectively use it like a digital form of uh, currency or pounds or USD or whatever it is. But when I want to start making cross-border related transactions, especially if it's QBP to USD or Euro to XYZ, it can be like based on like really inefficient systems yep. uh, and expensive systems as well, actually. Yep. Um, is that a question of those infrastructures not really having developed and now being overtaken by, by an application of new technology in a more efficient way? Um, so is it a question of time more than anything else, do you think? Uh, I, I do. I, I think I think that blockchain technology is going to, in the future, um, even more so than it does today, really simplify the way cross-border transactions happen. Again, the uh, you know blockchain is a distributed group of computers all around the world, all linked by the internet, all with the same database, and that's really powerful. That means that I will be able to send dollars to anybody anywhere in the world, whether it's a central bank digital currency dollar or a stablecoin dollar. And the same is true for pounds or euros or yen or mm. pick your favorite currency. Um, so I, I, I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be a big thing. And it, it the, the, the dollar seems to be the dominant currency. Mm. Um, it, it, 
It will be hard for another currency to completely displace the dollar, I think. But there's room for lots of other currencies in the world, and it will depend on a whole bunch of factors that economists know much better than I do, which currencies will will predominate. Um, and one of the reasons why I, f- I worked with folks to help found the Digital Pound Foundation is to try to create the conditions where the pound could be a currency for the internet, just like the dollar is. Do you, do you think when people, I'll ask you one last question on, on CBDCs, um, like I've heard lots of different arguments on the efficiency side of things, actually most specifically during the whole COVID uh, period, the suddenly concept of moving away from a cash-based system for like really efficient distributions of allowances or supplements or whatever it was, 100 USD to 5 million people who are based in outland regions. And there's this wonderful tech infrastructure that could allow that to happen to mobile. That, that has a fascinating positive. Sometimes you hear the negatives, which are, wow, I can't have an independent uh, cash transaction. Suddenly everything is going to be on a record that's subject to all sorts of oversight, analysis, um, you know, and that's quite scary. Where, 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 I mean, do you think one of those arguments will overcome the other? Will the efficiency outweigh the question of making yourself subject to that kind of, you know, data analytics information or I don't know. No, I think it's a really good question. Um, look, we already do tons of transacting in ways that are visible to to others. Um, I've started using Apple Pay a couple of years ago. I find it incredibly convenient. I use Apple Pay for most things nowadays, whether they cost a dollar or whether you know it's my hotel bill or whatever. Um, and, and so I think people are, are generally not that concerned about the privacy mm-hmm. of their transactions. That said, I do think there should be space for private transactions. Mm-hmm. And how that gets sorted out, I, I don't know the answer yet, right? If I use uh, my wallet to send some uh, Bitcoin to you in your wallet, that is a semi-private transaction uh, because most of the rest of the world does not know your wallet address or my wallet address. And so we can do it um, in a pretty private way, even though it's on the public blockchain. I think there's going to be more privacy-enhancing technologies that mm. come to blockchain that will allow us to do that in private. And I think that regulators and policymakers should make space for that to happen. They've got to learn. They've got to be open to the application and use of the technology in the right way. I mean, privacy-focused transactions are fascinating, but you know, all these concepts of embedded uh, supervision or embedded ID-based systems or, or all of these, I mean, you can deal with compliance risk in very, very fascinating and interesting ways if the policymakers are open to learn. And that, that's always the... I, I think that's right, and and you know, to me, it, it's a question of of values, right? How much do we value personal privacy for for various things? And uh, you know, just like I don't want the rest of the world to see when I send a little kissy face picture to my wife by a text message, um, I don't necessarily want everybody to see 
when I'm sending some cash to to my daughters in at at university. Hey, look, this has been absolutely awesome and, and really appreciate you coming and taking the time. Really good to speak to you. And thank you so much for everything. Really great having you today. Thank you. I always uh, enjoy having the opportunity to say fart jars where hundreds of people will hear it. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for watching Mavericks, brought to you by Zappa Bank. Please like and subscribe for more episodes.